You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your host Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Discriminology. I'm joined by the usual co-hosts, Sydney and Steve. And today we have a special topic that's predicated on the racial wealth gap as it relates to content creation. Now, there is a racial wealth gap in the United States overall, but there is an especially large one in the pop culture and entertainment arena. Uh, This is additionally troubling considering the insurmountable contributions of black people in the arena of pop culture and digital creation. Uh, so today we have special guest Anuli Akinobu that will help us discuss this matter uh, as it particularly relates to Black women in content creation. She is a scholar practitioner working at the intersection of business, communications, and culture. She is currently a PhD student in sociocultural anthropology at New York University. Her dissertation project examines how race and desirability factor into the success of Black identifying social media content creators or influencers in the creative economy of Atlanta, Georgia. So Anuli, we want to personally welcome you onto the show. Very happy to have you here today. If there's any context or anything you'd like to share with our listeners that I missed, feel free to share with our listeners. I think that's a good place for us to start. Sure. I mean, one thing that is unique about me is that I come to academia or my doctoral studies from years of working in the marketing industry. So I'm sure we can get into that as well. But I've seen the uh, influencer pay gap um, behind the scenes because I've looked at the budgets that different brands, multinational brands have for their influencer campaigns. So I can tell you this from also my own professional experience as well. I did um, consumer research and strategy. And you also podcast on these related subjects as well? Yes, I have a podcast called Black in Real Life, B-L-K-I-R-L, and I talk about the influencer economy through the lens of Black content creators, influencers, marketers, just people who work in or adjacent to the influencer economy. And I'm working on season two of that podcast right now, but season one is on all your podcast streaming platforms. We appreciate you coming to share some of your, your knowledge in content creation. You've covered a lot of issues on on our podcast, but we haven't really gotten into pop culture in any real depth yet. So I think this should be good. You have years of experience in the the consumer research industry. Um, As it relates to being a Black woman, did you feel like you were included on the various teams that you worked on? Did you feel like your your lens or or what you brought to the table was valued or was it kind of classic corporate structure? Uh, All of the above. I will say it's very interesting. When I started straight from college, um, I moved to Chicago to work for a PR firm. And back then, that was 2013 when I graduated, there weren't a lot of campaigns that focused on Black people or like um, Black consumers. But by the time I left in 2019, all of my campaigns were for Black consumers. So there is a big shift in that six-year span in the industry's interest in promoting issues of diversity and inclusion but even when we use a word like diversity it still focuses on whiteness you know it's like every if you're not white then you're diverse so when it comes to like my experience in uh marketing it was kind of like that it was it was even though a lot of trends and a lot of just pop culture was spearheaded by black people you still felt like you had to be compared against like a white proxy. It wasn't just like, here's the black stuff and it's cool for what it is. It was always still like, this is just the AA campaign and the general market, like the words that they use in advertising, um, general market or total market. The main consumer for that is still a white mom from the suburbs who makes 75 K um, plus a year for their household. Like it's always that same like suburban mom who's always going to be like the brand's main focus and anything else is just like a small little side thing that's like trendy depending on what the moment is. So did I feel included? You know, they included me when it benefits them, right? Like when they need the insight of like pop culture or blackness or just to do my job. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, I remember, I could go on for days, but I'm just stopping with this example. I remember working on a campaign for a natural hair 
I used to have hair. Right now I'm bald, but I used to have hair, right? I'm a black woman with hair. I mean, that has had natural hair. And I've had non-black people say, well, that's not going to cor- um, resonate with the black audience. Black people won't care about that. Like, you're not really hitting a mark. And they would choose the ideas by the other team, which was predominantly like white women. I'm like, mm. But what was the basis for those arguments? The basis is brands would pay our firm for us to do these consumer studies, national studies that I would lead only for us to give them the results. And they say, well, my one friend, my one black and, uh, you know, coworker, my one friend or my one neighbor doesn't feel this way. I'm like, but thousands of other people do. So it wouldn't really come from anything. It would just come from like a feeling they had, or if they didn't read it in the newspaper that they read or the New York times, and it wasn't valid to them. Like that's actually a part of the reason I even got back to school in the first place because I was doing all these consumer studies and I'm like, this is really interesting stuff that no one is ever going to read. I would love to do like the do more research because that was a part of my job that I liked the best. I didn't really like like doing the research to now sell you some soap and the same soap every year. I liked doing it to like kind of share insights about how people live and think. And I had clients when I told them I was leaving, they're like, well, I don't really think that we treat black content creators different than white content creators. And, you know, I haven't read any studies that say that. So then you kind of click to you. Oh, okay. Instead of you taking my word or taking the work that I've done for you for the past how many years, you know, I have to do a study that somebody from like New York Times writes about or the Atlantic, whoever writes about for you to take that as seriously. Like you can't take it from me directly. You have to take it uh, diluted from somebody else that's like not in my same body. So that's kind of that's one of the reasons I wanted to get back to school, just to kind of prove to people that this is a real thing. And also not just like showing like, oh, this is a way that we've been discriminated against discriminated against but also to show black people are really creative people like we make something out of nothing all the time like i would love research to center blackness in a way that centers black joy and black creativity and not just the ways that we've been victimized and oppressed because that's one story but it's not the full story so that's what i want to do through my work did i feel valued and included all the time no but also is it because i'm a black woman that i didn't feel valued and included you never know right Sometimes I was the youngest in the room. Is it because of my age? Is it because of the way I present? You know, like I wear Air Force Ones to like a company meeting or something. Like, is that professional to them? Is it is it my accent and where I'm from? Is like you never know why why it is. Is it just my gender? You know, that's the thing about corporate America. You you don't always know why it is that people treat you differently than others. You can always make inferences and sometimes it was very clearly oh you're black or very very clearly you're a woman but it could just be a combination of those intersecting identities i have the the point that that you made i I find incredibly interesting and i think that it kind of cuts across a lot of the discussions that we've had is this willingness to take an anecdotal argument i know one person who doesn't like this rather than looking at an incredible wealth of information that you've provided, right? So this one person that they know in their life may not appreciate this, but here you are with all of this evidence saying, no, this is this is going to work if we do it this way. Like, no, 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 this one guy I know doesn't. And, and that seems to be something that cuts across so many of the different things that we've talked about. But to hear it uh, put the way you did is, is, I think it's just fascinating. And it's only anecdotal when it benefits people, too. Because I've also right, had these, right. they're like, well, no, that's your opinion. I'm like, but, the, but it's a study. How's it my right. opinion? <laughs> right. And sometimes, actually, like, to be strategic about things, uh, even though I would do the work, I sometimes would ask other coworkers to present it. Mm. And isn't it bad that I would have to do that? Like, even though this was, like, my whole study, I might ask someone that's, like, a higher level or just a different... That's such a shame. That's such a shame, though. It is a shame. But sometimes it's like, if I want this thing to get sold, this like strategy to get sold, and I know that whatever reason this client feels something about me, then I'm just going to have to bite it and just, you know, put the pride aside and have someone else present it. And that is terrible, but it's something that I've done before. Mm. And it would get sold. It kind of goes into that, like, 
I mean, we're probably going to bring it up later, but you know, about how to kind of combat or um, address these things that kind of, it kind of like that kind of creates the cycle of, you know, black people having to, having to constantly pivot or adjust or feel like they have to, um, you know, like maneuver this way. And it kind of like creates this cycle, like, okay, well, how do we combat this? if we still feel like we have to keep doing it. And it's like this, these, these situations still present themselves, um, especially, especially in corporate America. I work for corporate America also. And it's like, you know, we, we inherently think about these things um, when we're in these spaces and it's, it makes it, it kind of brings up that question to me about like, yeah, how do really do, how do we really combat this or change it? Um, if this is already something that we like innately think about. To, to me, spaces. it sounds like the same concept of, and I know we are going to get into it a little bit later, but how blackness from an entertainment standpoint or black features you see it in black women all the time are abhorred by the greater power structure until it's repackaged into let's say either a a white person or repackaged in a white product or white entertainment um would you agree that it's, it's kind of the same thing in terms of how you felt that you you needed your work presented or validated by someone that had more privileges than you in obviously many regards yeah yeah it's it's a different form of appropriation but appropriation nonetheless but in this case yeah it was definitely like a strategic move because you you kind of learn the ways people think like <laughs> the things i could tell you about my experience in, in in corporate america would literally blow your mind but you learn a lot about like the human psyche and kind of how to like navigate things and i would take that into my experience in academia which is not you know, which is not a perfect industry in itself. People forget that academia itself as an industry to mirrors the same stuff I experienced in marketing you have in, in the academic world too, but you just get paid significantly less to go through it. Well, I think that just kind of uh, touch a, a couple of former guests talked about navigating and having to navigate through white spaces and having to, uh, you know, Maliki talked about code switching, you and Greg talked about code switching and, and just the amount of pressure that that you're under just just to try to get this thing across that your white coworkers never feel never experience never ever have to deal with because it's not it never goes the other way they never have to navigate in those other spaces and i think that's just such an incredibly important thing for people to understand is it's 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 twice as much work a hundred times the amount of work whatever it is it's so much more pressure than just simply walking into a room and, and immediately being accepted. It's, it's this extra level. And I think that's, you know, and I don't know. You talk about how do we combat it. I, I think we just keep talking about it and we keep talking about it. And hopefully hopefully more people will be aware, but it's it's a long slug. I don't know if you can combat it. I mean, maybe I'm pe- pe- uh, pessimistic. I think you can find ways to navigate it and right. like you know, be strategic in how you like move around it, but will it completely be eradicated in the will we have a world where everyone is like truly equal? Under a capitalist system, I don't think so. Right. But I will say um one thing about like my own research that um kind of motivates me and I'm excited about is that when I started my like doctoral studies, I was interested in LA and eventually maybe like a in the past year or so, I was like, oh, well, LA is about like black people trying to navigate an established white space. Because when you think about social media influencers in LA, it's like, you know, Addison Way and like kind of Hollywood and like more like white spaces. And I switched to Atlanta because it, it was a place where it is a place where black people are creating spaces for themselves. So like one way to combat it or to at least approach it is to set our own tables, build and set our own tables. And Atlanta is a good example of that because now it's, you know, black tech capital of the country. Yeah, it's like the black capital of the right, country. And right? like yeah. Hollywood of the South. And and a lot of that is because of the black leadership in the city, whether or not you actually like the politicians. The people I talked to in Atlanta so far have said, I grew up with black teachers and black doctors and that's normal for me. Me growing up in Maryland, no. <laughs> that I didn't, when did I get my first yeah. black teacher? Maybe middle school. Like I didn't have all that around mm. me. So I, you yeah. did good. <laughs> right. Some people not into college or not at all. Right. Yeah. You brought up Atlanta. You brought up content creation. Um, 
you know, I know we want to talk about the, the racial wealth gap as it relates to content creation, but for our listeners, can you kind of explain at a high level how content creation is monetized to begin with? I don't, I don't think there's a clear understanding in terms of, okay, I made this viral video, but how did I make money off of that? And I think that's important based on to set before you kind of discuss how there's a gap. Uh, one baseline I also like to set is the difference between an influencer and a content creator. Um, because those are technically two different types of people, even though they do overlap. So, for example, um, all influencers are content creators, but not all content creators are influencers. To be an influencer means that usually a brand or somebody is paying you because they think that whatever you post or do will get other people to buy or support this project or idea that they have. So you're getting paid for your influence. Now, any of us can post content online, but no one is really paying all of us for our influence or perceived influence. So we are all content creators, but we may not all be influencers. And to kind of talk about like, how do they make money? If you are, I mean, there's a lot of levels to this, but if you are somebody that is a full-time influencer, even a part-time influencer, it just means that a significant portion or some portion of your income comes from brand sponsorships or brand deals. Like somebody is paying you to create content and post and share that content. So it's usually brand deals that make someone an influencer. But now, you know, there are different ways for people to monetize their influence or monetize their creativity. Some may want to join a site like Patreon or OnlyFans in which um, rather than a brand pay you, you have a community of people pay you. It's similar to, um, and people don't bring this up a lot, but similar to the art patronage system. You know, like, for example, Harlem Renaissance, a lot of the um, artists would have these patrons that would pay their livelihood so they can focus on their art. Um, it's kind of that way. Like, your brands are um, essentially your patrons or the community of people that um, um, support you on a Patreon or uh, only fans are your patrons in that way, except back then maybe they would have one large major patron, and now today you can have hundreds of patrons. Um, some people are, some content creators are trying to go back to the times when you would just have one patron, but those are harder and harder to find. You might have like a brand deal that's like consistent and large, or you might have different brand deals, or you might have just one person who's interested in what you do. And they want to support that. So those are two ways of making money. There's also um, affiliate links. Like if you are a YouTuber or blogger and you put some links in your post and people click that. And if they buy something, once they get to that website, then you get a, a cut of it. But like it's pennies on the dollar. So you would have to have a lot of people clicking and buying for you to actually make a lot of money. But it does become a decent revenue generator for content creators who do have a lot of influence and who can like convert sales. Then you also see content creators um, like a Jackie Ina, for example, she's one of the largest in the beauty space, black, white, or other, right? She started coming up with a product line. She has candles called Forever Mood. So content creators are also becoming entrepreneurs in that they're coming up with their own products. Because, you know, that to me is the way that they eye towards sustainability. Like maybe you're like 10 years from now, you're not going to want to be showing outfit of the days and your life is going to change and you're going to change and you don't want to post as much on social media. So how can you create a life for yourself outside of social media? And one major way people are doing that is through um, products, coming up with their own products to sell, whether it's collaborations like Amazon to drop, right? Um, content creators partner with Amazon to create their own fashion line and then people can buy that line or they want to create their own um, business outside of a company. They're doing that too. So there's a lot of ways. And I think I just named only a few that people are making money from um, content creation, but we can get into other ways as well. So I saw on your website, you make many references to the creative economy. And, and you said that in your, in your past podcast too. Is that essentially what you just explained or is it more nuanced than that? Well, the creative economy, like every city has a creative economy and it's just a collection of industries that um, kind of promotes the arts, kind of promotes, I hate to use the word creative again, but creativity. So the creative con economy insists, um, consists of 
you got the marketing industry, like marketing and advertising. You got um, art, film, TV, social media, technology, like all together. Those are those represent the creative economy. And it's important to think of them as these like very intersecting um, industries, too, because you could be a content creator and you're working with a advertising company on a, you know, promotion for a brand, they may turn that promotion into a film. So they would need to bring people from the film business in order to shoot that content. Like they're all kind of intersecting these days, which is why it's called the creative economy as a whole. You know, celebrities are trying to become content creators and content creators are trying to become celebrities. Everyone is playing in each other's sandbox. Rappers are trying to be basketball players and basketball players are trying to be rappers. and Especially in Atlanta. Right. Also, it's interesting, like athletes, now that the uh, NCAA decided to kind of like open the floodgates a little bit. Open the floodgates, and now they're all like, now all these athletes are becoming content creators. Like, how many more athletes have started TikTok accounts in the past six months? Like, they they now all have like social media managers. They like, I've even seen TikToks of this girl, and she was like, um, I do social media for this basketball player. Here's a day in my life. Like they have social media teams around them because they now want to be content creators because it's just another um, revenue stream. Like if you have a decent following on a on a site like uh, Instagram or TikTok are the best ones for monetization as far as like brand deals as well as YouTube. But more people use Instagram and TikTok for short term short form videos. You can make a decent living just off of like TikTok posts or Instagram posts, especially as a as an athlete too, or anybody, um, TikTok is cool because anybody can kind of, like you asked me before, like anyone can become viral off of a TikTok. Now you don't mm-hmm. make money automatically from becoming viral. And that's where we can get more into the racial wealth gap. Cause um, there are a lot of times black people may become platinum viral, right. And not make a dime. And a white person may do the same thing and start their career. I mean, Addison Rae, Charlie D'Amelio, like they basically started their careers like that. So can you you explain that? Because we wanted to ask you about the whole TikTok strike with the um. Now, uh, J- Jada usually makes fun of me for not being as as a uh, attuned to pop culture, but I, we saw that there was this whole TikTok strike. Black creators didn't want to do the dances anymore, and we it was it's kind of funny to see the the white content creators struggle when there was no uh, opportunity to appropriate. So can you kind of just yeah, it was it was kind of it was pretty funny. You were kind of parlaying into that in terms of how you could create a viral video and not make money. But can you kind of give us your take on that whole strike and appropriation on the internet in general? Sure. I mean, wait. I want to hear what Jada has to say about it too. White content creators very much so get away with it, and that's kind of why it created that pattern to you know that or the mindset that they could get away with it. And so I was really really happy when the black creators kind of took a stand and were like we're not going for this anymore um and it i found it absolutely hilarious when they were in shambles what are you going to copy now what are you going to do now and they're still kind of like gathering their thoughts and trying to figure things out they're trying to like put new dances to our our old music and it's like really shaky right now (laughs) i was here for the strike i wish it was longer i was like we could have kept going because the reason that particular strike happened was um you know megan Stein came out with thought shit the song and the black content creators are like we know how this cycle like you said jada like we know how this cycle is gonna go we're gonna come up with these dances you're all gonna steal it not only do you steal it you dilute it like you make the move slightly less complicated and everything looks like, you know, junior varsity cheerleading dance routine. And and then that becomes popular. So this time the black content creators were united and saying, no, we're not going to do a dance with a song. And what did the white content creators do? Even though the song tells you instructions, so the song says, hands on my knees, take your ass on that thought shit. The directions are right there. And what did they do? All the videos for that song were like hands in the air and they're walking away like they're so they're so confused and frustrated they, and then they just walk away <laughs> I was like instructions are right there it was right there for you it's like y'all really need us to like do everything for you so I thought that was hilarious when people said you know what y'all 
you guys are on your own. Eventually, you know, the lines of unity started to crack a bit and people started to come up with little dances to the song after a couple of weeks. But I do think it really made a statement for at least when it was going on that, wow, like these social platforms need us. Like they would be nothing without us. And you saw that exactly with the renegade challenge. Like that's one of my favorite case studies because it also speaks to like the importance of Atlanta in pop culture because the song that was used for the Renegade Challenge is the song called Lottery by Atlanta-based rapper K-Camp. And then Jalila Harmon, who's a teenager from the suburbs of Atlanta, you know, made a dance um, with that song originally on Dub Smash. But that's also another like racial thing to get into. Like Dub Smash is more like young Black people. TikTok started out becoming more popular with like white suburban kids. So the song and her dance didn't really take off on Dub Smash. And it didn't really take off in general until some, you know, suburban white kids saw it on Dub Smash and brought it to TikTok and then started doing it on TikTok. And that's when it became popular. And that's why we now have the Demilios who have a reality show on Hulu that nobody watches. And they have a whole career based off of that dance. They went to the all-star game to do that dance. And they brought in Jalila like last minute to be like, oh, well, we know it's your dance, so you guys can do it. You could do it with us because everyone was like, "Why didn't you bring the creator? You guys brought the white girls who stole it from her." So that's like a great example of like just the ways that like things that we do get appropriated, and people, other people are making money off of it um, before we do. Like so now, Jalila is becoming more of a content creator, but she still very much has like her everyday life. Like she didn't like move to Hollywood like. Addison Ray and the D'Amelio sisters and become famous and do like a lot of brand collaborations. She's done some, but not to the extent of the people who basically stole her dance. But the thing about the internet is also, it's hard to say what is stolen or not because the law in the U.S. is so behind when it comes to moral rights or rights for, um, in the favor of artists that there's a the case to even say that something was stolen is difficult, which is what hurts Black content creators. Why, why do you think it's so at times socially acceptable to just appropriate and even zooming out of content creation um even when i think of like the kardashians for example like i think they're just walking appropriation of black features black culture black everything just repackaged and sold in white bodies i even see it accepted in our communities as well too which always perplexes me you know because black people follow the Kardashians as well, too. It's not just a matter of it being socially acceptable in white spaces. So that's always perplexed me. Do you have any Do you have any insight on that? It's so funny. Dude. I don't know if y'all saw Kim Kardashian's outfit at the Met Gala um, earlier in the week, but she was wearing literally all black. You couldn't see anything. And everyone's like, wow, she finally ascended to what she wanted to become, a black woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... But the thing about um, appropriation in general when it comes to like Black people, Black places, Black bodies is that the in the history of this country, Black people have always been commodities. Like we came to these this country, like the United States, as a commodity. So no wonder it's so easy for people to take what we created or like exploit us in a number of ways is because that's how it's always been obviously in like different extremes, but like, I, I think that's why it's so easy for corporations and for individuals to take things from black people or appropriate what we do. Because part of it is like the history of our country in which they never saw us as anything but a commodity, anything but to take. Like, I also think of like another case that, that actually was one of the reasons I wanted to get into this work in the first place, but it was on fleek, you know, Peaches Monroe, the teenager, Kayla Newman, she came up with that phrase, on fleek, right? And it was on Vine and it was popular. You can also talk to talk about Vine, rest in peace. But <laughs> everybody started using on fleek. You would see it in commercials. You would go to the coffee shop and it'd be like, our coffee is on fleek. Try our lavender lattes today. Like every everyone was using on fleek. Even Forever 21 had on fleek shirts. Um, Kayla eventually tried to like, capitalize on her virality you know that's a smart thing to do she wanted to start a, a makeup line and like a beauty line she started an indiegogo campaign and she i think she only wanted to raise like eleven thousand dollars it wasn't as much as she probably should have um, asked for but 
she did not, she was not able to raise the money because even though everyone knew who she was and she was viable for this thing, they didn't value her enough to pay her for her um, intelligence her or pay her for like her, her work, her contributions. So everybody, all these corporations are making money off of her phrase and she can't get $11,000 to become an entrepreneur and start her own business like that. Those type of things like hurt me to the core and it's a part of the reason why I do this work. But it, it really speaks to the ways that, you know, black bodies and black ideas are always exploited in like a capitalist um, society. We're just commodities. We'll be right back. Beep, beep. We are interrupting this show to tell you about our podcast with a very special announcement. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying your podcast which you're listening to right now. But I would like to tell you about another one. We are Sounds Like Autism. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Which is full of impactful programming. It's the podcast that celebrates neurodiversity by speaking to the people who are helping to create a more inclusive world. I am Dave Thompson. I am an educator and an innovator and a leader within the space of helping the world become a more inclusive place for neurodivergent people as a neurodivergent self-advocate myself. And my co-host, Josh Mursky, is an incredible, hardworking, big picture dude who is on the autism spectrum and super stoked to spread his message of inclusion along with me. We've had folks on from all over, all walks of life, all over the country, and more. You don't need to be someone who is autistic yourself or have skin in the game. You don't need a family member or a neighbor who is autistic. You probably have one, but you don't need any of that to get stoked on neurodiversity and inclusion. We're confident that if you give us a shot, if you join us on our journey, that you'll be a lifer and you'll be fully invested in this mission. We are just so delighted and honored to have this kind of platform to share with you all what we do check us out i hope you enjoy your current podcast and then after that skedaddle and come right over here to sounds like autism and check us out now back to the show you're listening to discriminology with your hosts malik silal steve kramer and sydney pin uh Anuli, you can correct me if i'm wrong but but on top on top of that these black create content creators, they also don't, they don't receive um, like any monetary credit or any credit at all sometimes even by these, um, you know, by these big corporations or by whoever is using their content, like Forever 21, for example, making the shirts. Like, do they, these, these content creators, these black people don't receive proper credit um, for, for their creation? No, not at all. Because the way that a lot of things work on the internet is that they can say, well, the internet is public domain, which means this belongs to nobody, which means, you know, since it's part of the the general cultural zeitgeist, like everything is for us, everything is for everyone. So it's, they make it so like they can claim that they don't know who started these things. It just all of a sudden start came from nowhere. So they wouldn't have to um, give people credit. Now, Logitech has a campaign now in which they're trying to promote black creativity. But again, this is diversity and inclusion, so there's a financial gain for this. But um, one good thing that they did do recently is they had um, um, the people that created some of the Savage Dances, like the Nene Twins, and they said, well, this is like a, a trademark. Like, we have patented this dance in your name, so everyone knows the Savage Dance is yours. Now, I'm not sure if this is, like, legally binding or if this is more like um, just like symbolic um, to recognize them as con- like contributors because it is hard in the legal system to like um, patent or trademark a dance, which is why when Fortnite started stealing like Blockboy JB's shoot dance or Alfonso Ribeiro's like the Carlton dance, and they they started putting it on their platform and they were making money off these dances because the gamers would have to pay money. Yeah, they were right, selling they were it. it. Yeah. Like, they like Black Boy JB tried to sue because obviously everyone know knew that that was his move. That everyone was. I did a whole separate project about about that <laughs> about that thing, um, the dance. But you know he had trouble trying to sue because technically in the U.S. it's not illegal yet. Like some of these moves 
you might be able to pattern like a choreographed dance, but not individual moves. So if anything, we'd have to see the legal system change and there's some old farts behind it. So take some time. But now, but now I'm confused because correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm just completely making this up, isn't there a way now that you can like invest in content? Like you can buy ownership models of digital content or am I just completely making that up? Are you talking about NFTs? Yes. Thank you very much. Cause I was going to struggle mightily trying to remember what that was called. Well, only specific types of things. So for example, if I was a artist and I said, Hey, I paint, I drew this thing and I made it like this digital thing online. You can buy this digital thing. Or if I'm a journalist, I'm like, you can buy this art- um, article I wrote through an NFT. That is a way that people are trying to make money, but you can also see who's making money through this. It's still white people. You know, like it hasn't gone down to like the everyday, you know, Jalila Harmon outside of Atlanta can make money from this too. So it hasn't trickled down all the way, but it is the way that we're seeing people beginning to try to monetize digital creations. But I still don't think it's gotten down to like the everyday person, individual level. Like the people I've seen done it, do it are like, you know, people who are kind of inclined to be like digital tech entrepreneurial types. There is a company um, started by uh, Angela Benton. What is it called? It's a culture. And it's kind of this idea that like companies are stealing our data anyway, so you might as well make money from it. And it's this idea that like as a black person, you know, these you know that these companies are stealing your data, so you so you can give it to us, and then we will sell it to companies for you, and you'll make some pennies upon each transaction. I don't know anyone that's personally tried that, but it is another um, option that is becoming kind of teased towards like Black people getting compensated for their ideas. It still sounds exploitative, though. It's it's kind of. Have you ever seen that Red Book? And one of the gazelles is like. That's kind of that's not going to make you run faster than a lion. And it's like, no, nah, like my goal is just to run a little bit faster than you. So it's like you're not really trying to service the community. You're just trying to look slightly more appealing than the outright exploiters. I don't know if that's better or worse. Yeah. I can't say either. I mean, it's only time to tell how this works out. But like, would I do it? I don't know. I, you know, I'm not sure. I don't think it's something that I would do, even though they make a point that your data is being sold anyway. I mean, what can people do to kind of combat it? I know for me, right, like a personal example, when I started Black in Real Life, like I knew that I wanted this platform to become not just a podcast, but like things I put my like research underneath. Like that name, Black in Real Life, hadn't been used online yet in the way I spelled it, B-L-K-I-R-L. So I, for the past year, worked immediately. I retained a lawyer and I was like, I need to copyright this name, Black in Real Life, because what I don't want is somebody to start using that name. And that is even like a little bit of privilege on my end that I'm able, that I was able to do that. Like I put in my own money and as a student, I don't have a lot of it, but that's how much I wanted to invest in myself with it. So I worked with a a lawyer, Black lawyer, because, you know, try to support Black people, and it took a year for me to trademark the name. But the first thing I did do was uh, every, like I got the web platform for it. I got all the social media handles for it. Even if I'm not even using that platform, like I'm not on Facebook, but black and real life Facebook I've secured just so no one else can. Like that's something that if you have an idea, you have a name for something, you can start by at least getting the website domain, at least get in the social handles. And then if it's something that you're serious about and you think you want to invest in long term, I definitely would um, consider trying to trademark that name. So now I have a registered trademark for Black in Real Life. If somebody tries to use it because it is a name that someone could feasibly try to use, they'd have to come see about me and my lawyer. Um, so that's something you can do, but does it work for everybody? Is it is it something that's accessible to everyone? I'll be the first to admit no, but it is a direction that people can begin to take. Take mental notes of that, team. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, discriminology. Y'all better get up. Noted, noted, noted. Uh, thanks for thanks for the uh, in podcast legal counsel, Noliwi. We appreciate that. Very timely, very poignant. <laughs> Just noted. 
I will say like another little legal thing is when I started Black in Real Life, I put the TM, like the little TM symbol next to the name at all times. So it wasn't an official trademark at the time, but it kind of indicates to people like, oh, this is- Don't try this one. Yeah, Yeah, don't try me, right? (laughs) I used to want to be a lawyer and study intellectual property. So when I was at Howard, my- um, Specialty was legal communication. So yeah, I'm very interested in like issues of ownership, which I guess is a part of how I got to here as well. No, it, it sounds really interesting. And honestly, I've never even heard of this type of research or career path. So like when I came across your profile, I, I know we have a mutual friend as is in Asia Marin. Um, I was really intrigued just by the whole, like, I was like, I just want to talk to her. I've never even heard of anything like this before in terms of like, I don't want to say a tangible career path, but like research back behind it. Um, so it was, it was completely new to me. It's new to me too. We're just making it up as we go. I mean, I was a consistent <laughs> researcher and then I'm just taking it to be like a, um, an academic researcher, which is funny because when I got into the PhD program and I had to like quit my job and tell people, the way that people would like look at you differently because they're like, oh, well, you're, you're, she's smart. I was like, I've been smart catch up like it's funny that people kind of associate like academia with like automatically you're smarter than everyone and people who aren't in academia is less smart but it's like I've always been doing the same research you know but now that I'm around this like I'm associated with an institution I see the difference in how people kind of like um you have a title yeah validating title now there's a white institution that's supporting me I was just about to say Oh, she's somebody now. I've been somebody though, but I—that's right. part of the reason I went back to school because I could do the same work outside of this institution, and maybe not get as far because of just these biases that people have. Um, so I know that unfortunately, in order for this work to be taken as seriously as a serious project, because people are like, "Oh, that's cute. You study social media memes and stuff." Haha. Um, that have to be associated with the institution. And also, I mean, if you're a PhD student at NYU, they do pay you. So I'm getting paid to study no, this no, to a stipend. No, so, you know, thank God for that. Um, I get to study something I'm interested in um, and get paid to do it. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying it's a lot. I don't want your listeners to that. <laughs> I left a big, I left a career where I was making significantly this- more. So, you know, I'm passionate about this. <laughs> Discriminology listeners, if you need a loan, money, handouts, anything, uh, contact Black in Real Life for <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a prayer. That's the best I can do. <laughs> we'll, t- we'll take the prayers, too. <laughs> Nothing to scoff at. Uh, one more thing we wanted to ask you. Um, so in terms of ways to combat it, I know we kind of referenced that it, it's something that's hard to combat and it's, it's you know, whether it's deemed pessimistic or just being realist is another conversation. But if you kind of focus on a little more high profile content creators, so if you look at the in, the music industry, the first person that comes to my mind is Nipsey Hussle in terms of like trying to establish this independent, almost separatist vibe in terms of having your own label. Uh, owning the royalties to your music, creating products, around, like creating a whole brand as an artist. Do you see that as a feasible way to combat some of this appropriation? Yeah, 100%. Like you're seeing people find ways to kind of get in the system without actually being in a system. So Nipsey Hussle is a great example. There's also like Chance the Rapper, right? Like winning a Grammy without being like on a record label. There's... Um, what Dapper Dan, right? Like he's now going to be given a CFDA Lifetime Achievement Award and he's never had a fashion show. He's the first designer to be given that award that's never had a fashion show. So it really speaks to this idea of, like I said previously, like making and setting your own tables because if you're popping, everyone's going to want to see what's up anyway. So like setting your own tables, collaborating with people that are your peers, you know, like we we always think about mentorship as this, like, I got to go with someone who's already established. But like, I love this idea of coming up with people that like we're kind of working together and we're collaborating together. And then you never know like where we'll be. So I think that's one way to combat it is to kind of collaborate with like minded people um, that you could actually um, work with and start your own thing. 
Um, that's how Issa Rae became so popular, right? She was doing Awkward Black Girl with her friends, posting on YouTube. I used to watch it in college, right? And now she has a whole HBO show. The goal shouldn't always be to end up in like, you know, HBO or like these still white spaces, but her trajectory and even someone like Nipsey Hussle's trajectory does speak to this idea that like, if you create something that's solid, you will eventually get rewarded for it. Like if it's so unshakable, if it's so like on the nose of like what people want and there's enough like attention and audience for it. Like you can ship the gaze to you without having to kind of exploit yourself or kind of devalue yourself by being in these spaces that don't value you anyway. Like we're seeing what happens when like black people kind of coalesce around mm-hmm. each other. Um, just like, for example, um, to Hannah Nicole Jones, she started the 1619 project for New York Times. And um, was it University of North Carolina or South Carolina? university that she was working with escapes my brain, but it's in the Carolinas. They didn't give her tenure, right? Like despite her like international renown, the Pulitzer Prize win in person, they still denied her tenure, which is like the peak of like academia. So what happened? She decided, well, I don't want to be in a place that's not designed for me to succeed or a place that doesn't support me. Howard University, the HBCU and my alma mater took her in and said, we're going to create this whole department, this whole system around you. We're going to like support our own. Like that is why not just HBCUs, but black places and black spaces in general are still important because if we are not going to be supported um, outside or externally or outside of our community or mixed in mixed company, then we have to come up with ways to support our own. We have to come up with ways to not think they're all, competitors against each other but collaborators because that's the only way we'll make it to freedom is if we're like in lockstep holding hands together like that's the best way i could think about combating this is to do your own thing with your people (laughs) not to be segregationist segregationist but you know it wasn't a terrible idea in in its entirety (laughs) i'm about you know it's it's not it's it's not a terrible idea i i don't I don't know if I'm off base with this, but I'm definitely older than than you folks. And when I when I the year I graduated college, actually FUBU was started. So Damon John started FUBU, and there was just tremendous backlash. You know, how dare they start? Like just in the name for us, by like, so you're not going to let white people in? Like, well, no, it's our company. We're doing what we want with our company. And then one of the early influencers, LL Cool J, wore them in a Gap commercial. And so, like, all of a sudden, Gap has street credit, FUBU blows up, Damon John's on Shark Tank now, and uh, it was just, it, it, it was, when I was reading you, when I was reading your your work, and when I was looking through you, that was one of the first things that, that I thought of from, from my youth, was that here is this incredibly successful black space in an incredibly competitive market, Right. And then they, they won hip hop awards and things like that for their closing. And, and I'm sure LL had a lot to do with it, with, with them, with their, their meteoric rise, the way they rose. But I think that those sorts of things are incredibly important and they're not, it's not, I don't see it as segregationist. I think I see it as relying on people who are like-minded and are going to follow your vision and be true to your vision. A hundred percent. And we also know what happened after that, right? Tommy Hilfiger started making similar aesthetic clothes. That's right. Ralph Lauren started making similar aesthetic clothes and and everyone was trying to get to like the hip hop market in that way. But I mean, even before FUBU, there was um, Walker Rare, right? Like there's a Mm. cross colors. There's a lot of like black owned companies that have been, you know, kind of setting the stage, setting the precedent for style. And the company like, Walkerware and now even FUBU in itself has become kind of like dinosaurs of of fashion, unfortunately. But like a lot right. of these trends always come back, and that's where it started. Right. As a as a kid, uh, I was dressed in Rockaway from head to toe. Mm. <laughs> Dripped out. I mean, baby fat did come back though. Yeah, they did. But look, yeah. Right, but Adidas, Adidas doesn't doesn't blow up until run dmc starts wearing them so you know 
So like you had. Exactly. It's like the black influence has always been there. Always. Like jazz, right? They used to think it was like a dirty, you know, music form until like white people started playing jazz. <laughs> it's right. So sometimes it goes both ways. Sometimes people use like the quote unquote, like black cool to sell things. And then sometimes it's like people have to like appropriate black cool and sanitize it in order to sell things. Either way, we still get exploited somehow. That sounds like a really like negative way to say things, but yes, let's collaborate together, create our own tables because they want to eat whatever we're eating anyway. Honestly, Anuli, like that was a drop mic moment. I would probably just end it, end it right there. But like, we didn't want to pigeonhole you into this conversation because you obviously you bring a ton of value and a ton of experience and research. So like, is there any, are there any topics, closing remarks, subjects that you want to illuminate for our listeners before we kind of close off for the day? Uh, I mean, I feel like we've talked through uh, quite a bit of things. I, I want to thank y'all for the conversation and the opportunity. But also, you know, if we're talking about creating our own tables, look out for season two of Black and Real Life. <laughs> Come in soon to a platform near you. Send us your um, promotional materials. We'll, we'll co-sign. We'll, we'll redistribute on our platforms, as meager as they are. Thank you so much for coming on. That was a, that was a really, really good conversation. Until next time. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.